We've been, we're working our way slowly through the book of Romans, and we've been focusing in on verses 21 to 26. It's been called the most important paragraph in the Bible. It's also been called the most important paragraph ever. And I think it's because the truths contained within have eternal significance if you get them right and if you get them wrong. And so we wanted to take time to slowly work through each part of this very long sentence so that we can know the truth for ourselves and the truth will set us free. We saw a couple of weeks ago uh, that the way Paul uses language in this sentence is he takes us to different images. Firstly, he took us in verse 24 to the courtroom where we are justified in God's sight, legally declared righteous. Last week, he took us from the courtroom into the marketplace where slaves are bought and sold and used this great word, redemption, which means to be bought out of slavery. And we saw last week that it's sin slavery that we're in bondage to because of our sin, because of the power of the evil one. Yet Christ is our redemption. He's become our redeemer. Now Paul uses another word and he takes us to another image. He brings us from the courtroom to the marketplace and now to the temple and uses this great word, not commonly used in our normal English nowadays, propitiation. And here we have the language of sacrifice and appeasement. Let us read Romans chapter 3, verse 21 to 26. This is the word of God. But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your holy word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may know the old Greek legend, the story of the Trojan War. How much is fact, how much is fiction? But we we learn in the old legend that Prince Paris runs off with Prince Helen who was the wife of the king of Sparta. The king of Sparta reacts, obviously, by sending out his army to go and reclaim his bride. He sends out Agamemnon, his brother, who is the commander of the army. They set sail to Troy to get back his wife. And as they make their way on this journey, they're met with fierce winds that oppose their progress. So fierce and so contrary to the winds that they cannot get across the sea. And so Agamemnon does what you do in a pagan culture. You make a sacrifice. 
and the sacrifice he determines he must make to appease the gods is he sends word for his daughter to be brought to him and he sacrifices her to the God and it apparently works. The winds relent and they set sail for Troy. This story reflects the dominant idea of propitiation found in all pagan religions in all of history. J.I. Packer, in his great essay on this topic, explains, the idea is as follows. This is what propitiation is. There are various gods, none enjoying absolute dominion, but each with some power to make life easier or harder for you. Their temper is uniformly uncertain. They take offence at the smallest things or get jealous because they feel you're paying too much attention to other gods and other people and not enough to themselves. And they take it out on you by manipulating circumstances to your hurt. The only course at that point is to humour and mollify them by an offering. The rule with offerings is the bigger the better. For the gods are inclined to hold out for something sizable. In this, they are cruel and heartless. But they have the advantage, and what can you do? The wise person bows to the inevitable and makes sure to offer something expensive but effective. This pagan, oh sorry, to offer something impressive enough to produce the desired result. Human sacrifice in particular is expensive but effective. Thus, pagan religion appears as a callous commercialism, a matter of managing and manipulating your gods. And within paganism, propitiation takes its place as a regular part of life, one of the many irksome necessities that one cannot get on without. Propitiation is a word used to describe the process of pacifying someone's wrath i.e. to make them propitious towards you, that it is favourable, amiable, to remove their anger so that they'll bless you. This is the scenario in the supermarket when the child is screaming and throwing a tantrum. What do parents do? They propitiate the wrath of their child with a toy or a lolly to avoid the embarrassment or the shame, and we've all done it. You have a demanding and harsh boss and so you pull an all-nighter to get that report done to make them happy with you, to propitiate their wrath so that they won't come against you and halt your career or punish you. So when Paul uses this word propitiation, is this what he's referring to? An angry, moody, capricious, bloodthirsty God who needs a hefty payment to satisfy his wrath so we can avert hell. Many are so uncomfortable with this word and all that it entails that they either remove it by omission from their gospel presentation, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, never mentioning wrath or anger. Or they remove it explicitly by rejecting this doctrine and removing this word. In the 1950s, there was a translation of the Bible that was released, the New English Bible. And in that translation, the translators were so against this idea of propitiation and this wrathful, angry God that they changed the word from propitiation to expiation. 
Another word we don't know what it means, but to expiate means to remove. The object of expiation is our sins. So God removes our sins. Whereas propitiation, the object of the verb is God, where God is propitiated. And so the, the meaning changes. There's no wrath, there's no anger. Our sins are cleansed, but there's no need to appease God because he just loves us. We all likely feel uncomfortable with talking of God's wrath, anger, and propitiation. Perhaps at church we can stomach it. But then if you invite your friend to church and the preacher's preaching on Romans 3.25 about the anger and wrath of God and propitiation, you start to feel uncomfortable. It's another thing altogether to look a loved one in the eye and not just to know that the wrath of God is against them, but to actually tell them God is angry with sinners and his wrath remains on you. And yet, against this uncomfortability, against their trend, I maintain, because of what the Bible teaches all throughout the Scriptures, that we should not only use this word propitiation, and of course we must carefully describe and define what it means in a biblical context, but that we should also celebrate it. It's a vital concept for understanding what really took place on the cross. In fact, it really is at the heart of the gospel, as J.I. Packer has said. J.I. Packer goes far as to declare that propitiation is the heart of the gospel, and he says, and, without, uh, and a gospel without propitiation at its heart is another gospel, other than which Paul preached. The implications of this must not be evaded. Today we're going to unpack what Paul meant when he used the word propitiation by contrasting it with the pagan notion of propitiation so that we can understand what Paul means in this grand sentence. We're going to look at the need, the author, the nature, and the results. Again, this is going to be another meaty sermon with lots of content in it. But as I've said over the past number of weeks, my aim is not for us to just be filled with knowledge, but that this would affect us in the core of our being. We saw in justification that it ought to make us rest in Jesus and not strive by our works, but to receive the full forgiveness that he has given us in, um, in his salvation. We saw in redemption that because of the costly price at which he paid, we ought to revere Jesus this week, following the R theme, it's going to sound a little bit weird, but because of propitiation, my hope is actually that we would recline with Jesus. And that'll make sense by the end of the message. So let's look at these four points. Firstly, the need for propitiation. Why is a propitiation, an appeasement, a sacrifice like this necessary? Well, let's contrast the two views. The pagan view says that the gods are moody, bad-tempered, often arbitrary. They are ruled by their own passions and lusts, and so they inflict pain upon humans to get what they want. And unless they're given a good sacrifice to placate them, they won't give you safety, health, prosperity, and what you want. 
Instead, you offer a sacrifice to the gods in the hope that they'll deem it worthy and your life will go well for you. This is still something practiced by many major religions today. You see little sacrifices outside of certain restaurants, outside of certain temples. They're offerings to win the favor of gods. The Christian view of our need for propitiation is very different. The Bible reveals that God does hate evil and is actively against all evil. But he is not moody. He's not raging with a bad temper. He doesn't see red and then flare out. He doesn't change his standards. Instead, the Bible teaches us that we, he has a settled opposition against sin. He's not unpredictable. Instead, he's thoroughly predictable in his anger and his wrath. And this is as true in the Old Testament as it is in the New Testament. Contrary to a common belief that the Old Testament God is angry and vengeful, the New Testament God is merciful and compassionate. No, God is merciful and compassionate and angry and wrathful at all times in both Testaments. Let's have a look at some of the proof. Psalm chapter 5 verse 4 debunks the often used saying God loves the sin, oh, God loves the sinner but hates the sin. The psalmist declares, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Isn't that so jarring? Read that sentence again. You hate all evildoers. We think, no, God loves the sinner. He just doesn't like what they do. But the Bible teaches that God can simultaneously love the world and be actively against the world in opposition to the sin and the sinners within it. God loves the sinner and hates the sinner at the same time. It's both. What is your picture of God? Does it account... For Psalm 5, verse 5. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2 to 8, in certain selections, gives a picture of a God that we're uncomfortable with. But this is our God. This is his self-revelation of who he wants to be seen. The Lord, and this is the covenant term, Yahweh, is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Quoting that great verse, Exodus 34, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We love that. Yet he will not clear the guilty. We mustn't forget the second half. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Verse 7, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Do you see salvation by faith alone? But with an overflowing flood, 
He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Love and hate. This is not just the Old Testament God. Look at the New Testament. We're far more comfortable with John 3.16 than John 3.36. Christ said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Amen. God does love the world, and that's why he sent his Son to people. But John 3.36 Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. God's wrath is his settled fury and hatred against sin. And those who do not obey Christ and do not follow Christ already stand condemned before God. Already the wrath of God is upon them unless they relent and turn. And what does this wrath look like? Well, Paul gives us an image of it at the last day, 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. These are harrowing words. And this leads us back to Romans. Because the argument from Romans 1.18 is this problem of wrath. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. God's wrath is against ungodly people. And the argument has been every single human person is ungodly. Therefore, by default, by our sin, God's wrath is against all humanity. He is angry with humanity. He hates Sin. It's a settled opposition. It's not moody. It's not temperamental. He's not seeing red. He's always hated sin and will always pour out his wrath upon sinners. And that is why we need propitiation. We need somehow for the wrath of God to be removed from us. Romans 3, 24 to 25, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're saved, but how do we know God's not angry with us? Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This wrath is no myth or fable. This is no thing that preachers do to make people afraid so they come to church or they make a decision for Christ. This is an eternal reality. And there may be some who are sitting here right now who stand condemned and the wrath of God is on you. And unless you turn, you will experience you will experience the eternal wrath of God justly, for you deserve it. There are some 
sitting in this room who we may not see in heaven but forever forever will be under his wrath. Now lest we have a misinformed view of wrath It's worth noting that the Bible uses anthropomorphic language. That is, anthropos means man, morphic means form. Uses language from the world of humanity to give us a picture as to who God is. So when we think wrathful, we think, ah, we think, we think, you know, temper. But when the Bible uses anthropomorphic language, it uses it in limited ways. In that God doesn't bear all of the human characteristics of wrath that we have. He has a holy and righteous wrath. Just like God's love is not like human love. Fickle. Fleeting. Swayed. Praise God that God's love is not like human love, but is in a divine, eternal love, and so it is with his wrath. It's worth noting here, too, that if you grew up in an abusive and violent home, or you're living in one presently. I'd imagine it'd be incredibly difficult for you to understand how God can be a wrathful God and good at the same time. If that's you, I'd love to speak with you and and pray with you and and talk with you about this, this doctrine, which I'm sure is incredibly difficult for you to hear. Finally, when we think of God's wrath... The Bible also describes it not as this thing that God loves to do, but actually as something that we choose for ourselves. See, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But then Jesus goes on to say in John 3.18, But whoever believes in him, that is the Son, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Why? This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. And so God's wrath comes upon those who walk away from him. Anyone can come to Christ. Anyone can come to the light and expose their sin and avert the wrath of God. But we choose in our pride to hide ourselves in hope. It's not real that it won't come, that it won't happen. And as a result, God's wrath remains on them. And so Paul says in Romans 11.22, Note then the kindness and severity of God. We must face the uncomfortable reality of the wrath of God Because it exposes our need for propitiation. We must face the truth. We must look it head on. If we're to ever understand really what took place on that cross. So if that's our need for propitiation, how do we make it happen? That leads to point two, the author of propitiation. Who does the propitiating? In pagan religions, it's us, it's the humans who make the sacrifice, do the appeasement, mollify the gods, turn them to them through some great act of sacrifice or payment. 
In the Christian view of propitiation, it's exactly the opposite. The whole Bible is a doctrine which tells us we cannot do anything to excuse me, get ourselves back to God. We cannot save ourselves. And the great glory of the doctrine of propitiation is that it is God who is the author. It is He who makes it happen. He's the one who offers the propitiation for our sins. Look at Romans 3.25 again. We're justified by grace through the redemption that is Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, whom God put forward. God is the one who propitiates himself. The problem of our salvation is a problem with the being of God. How can a just and holy God actually love wicked, sinful people? He can't. Unless that wrath is consumed, unless that wrath is taken away. But the human can't take it away. There's nothing we can do to appease the wrath. And so God becomes the author of propitiation. He appeases his own wrath by sending forth Christ on the cross. John, the apostle, wrote in his letters to the churches, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you see love and propitiation operating together? John Stott says the love, the idea, the purpose, the initiative, the action, and the gift were all God's. Some reject the doctrine of propitiation because they think it's incompatible with a loving God, but they've actually got it all mixed up. It's because God is a loving God that he sends forth Christ as a propitiation. God doesn't send Jesus to die so that he can love us. It's because he loves us that he sends Jesus to die for us. The thing in between us and God is his holy hatred of sin, and that must be removed, our sin and his hatred of it. We are objects of his wrath, and unless that is dissipated, unless that's taken away, and unless it's done in a righteous way, there can be no fellowship between God and man. John Stott, it cannot be emphasized too strongly that God's love is the source, not the consequence of the atonement. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. It's not that Christ was like, well, God, we have to have these humans in heaven with us. I'll go and I'll turn your wrath away so that, you know, I know you don't love them, but if you pour your wrath on me, then that'll make room for you to love. No, that's not how it worked. The Father and the Son in their eternal decree and will planned that the only way for God's wrath to be satisfied was for the Son to be sent forth and the Son went forth willingly to bear the wrath in our place for our sins because He loves us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit love you. That's why Christ came. God has always been the author of all offerings. In the Bible, the offerings the Israelites made, though in shadow form in the temple, they were given by God. Leviticus 17, 11, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. God makes the way. 
God provides the offering so that we can be brought in. Romans 5, 9. We see what happened on the cross. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's future tense. Because Christ came and died and we put our faith in him, we're saved from that day of future wrath when God will visit the earth in judgment. Now, there is no divine law. There's no eternal law which says God must forgive, that God must propitiate. God would be within his rights to create a world and never save a single being and consign all to hell. One poet, W.H. Auden, once quipped, I like to commit crimes. God likes to forgive them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. There's this faulty understanding that this is just how it had to be. This is just how, this is what gods do. We sin, they forgive. Great. But no, God is the author of this propitiation. He makes it happen because he loves us. So we've seen the need. God's wrath is a settled disposition against sin. We've seen the author. He offers his son. It's not us. We can't propitiate. So what's the nature? What is this propitiatory sacrifice, to use that language? Point three, the nature. How has propitiation been accomplished? What is the sacrifice that appeases God? Let's contrast again the pagan and the Christian view. The pagan view, we have to bribe the gods with sweets, fruits, vegetables, animals, and even human or child sacrifices. Remember, the bigger, the better. But in the Christian view, the offering and sacrifice needed is not a thing. It is a person. But not just a person, but God himself. If you go back into Genesis and you see the story of Abraham, he finally has a son called Isaac. And God comes to Abraham and says to him, I want you to offer your son Isaac as an offering to me. Now, Abraham had been waiting for so long to have a son, but in faith and obedience, without even understanding, thinking he probably would have thought, how is this consistent with God's character? But okay, I'll offer my son. So he takes Isaac and says, we're going up to the mountain, Mount Moriah, to, be, to make an offering. And as they go up, this is what it says, Genesis 22, 7. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, uh, to his father Abraham, my father, he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Where is the lamb? Where is the sacrifice? Where is the offering to atone, to bring us back to God? And Abraham replies, Genesis 22, 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Now, if you know the rest of the story, God provides a, a ram. He provides an animal so that the son isn't sacrificed. But it's all a prefiguring. It's all a shadowing. All throughout the rest of Israel's history, you can ask that question, but where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? 
Yes, they sacrifice lambs at Passover. Yes, they do it in the temple. Yes, there's many offerings. But where is the real lamb that will make God and man finally reconciled and unified together? And how this is ultimately fulfilled. John the Baptist decried when he saw Jesus Christ of Nazareth coming toward him, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God provides for himself a lamb and not just any lamb, not just any human, not just anything, but himself, God eternal incarnate in the form of Jesus Christ. Now Jesus had to be both God and man to be our sacrifice. It wouldn't work any other way. He had to be fully man in that he fully obeyed God's will and he actually was human flesh to be our perfect substitute. But he also had to be God. For salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah says. We cannot save ourselves. And only God himself could bear the eternal wrath for our sins. And indeed, it would only be righteous for God to bear the wrath because he is the inflicted party. It wouldn't be just for some other person to be sacrificed on the account of others. And even if there was a sinless man, he could only perhaps atone for one person's sin. But the offended party comes forth as the sacrifice. What would this have been like for the Saviour? To be the sacrifice. When discussing this, we are on hallowed ground. We are approaching Easter not far away. You see, the narrative of the Gospels, they move with this force toward the hill of Calvary. Much teaching, much movement, years and years and years in chapters. And then suddenly, half the Gospel is spent explaining the road to Calvary, the road to the cross. But it all changes really after the Lord's Supper. There's a flip. And this is where we see the nature of what actually took place on the cross. We, we get our first real glimpse of the horror of the cross. C.J. Mahaney says in his great book, The Cross-Centered Life, Gethsemane is a moment that floors us. A change so abrupt, so pronounced, that it shocks our very soul. Suddenly, we encounter a saviour we're unfamiliar with. What we observe is foreign and frightening. The one who stilled the storms, the one who fed the 5,000, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, the one who walked through a mob who were trying to push him off a cliff. Suddenly, this one falls hard upon the earth, sweating drops of blood. Mark tells us, he fell on the ground and prayed. He was greatly distressed and troubled. He prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The change that occurs in Gethsemane is that Jesus begins to stare into the cup of God's wrath. And he moves inexorably towards the cross where he will bear that wrath and he staggers. This is where we get a picture of really the hatred of God for sin. Jesus contemplates the wrath of God and he falls to his knees. He cries out three times, 
Is there any other way, O Lord? Can there be any other way than drinking the cup of your wrath? He knows that his soul will be consumed by divine displeasure. And on that cross, he'll be abandoned. And that is why on the cross, it goes dark and Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22, really crying out, God, why have you left me here so long? And Wayne Grudem gives a helpful illustration. Because sometimes we might think, well, the wrath of God isn't so bad. Jesus died three hours on the cross. He knows he's going to rise again. Wayne Grudem says, Yet to bear the guilt of millions of sins, even for a moment, would cause the greatest of anguish of soul. To face the deep and furious wrath of an infinite God, even for an instant, would cause the most profound fear. But Jesus' suffering was not over in a minute, or two, or ten. When would it end? Could there be yet more weight of sin? Yet more wrath of God? Hour after hour it went on. The dark weight of sin and the deep wrath of God poured over Jesus in wave after wave. Jesus at last cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why must this suffering go on so long? Oh God, my God, will you ever bring it to an end? On the cross, God's wrath is being poured continuously upon Jesus. And finally, Jesus gives up his spirit, fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. He poured his soul out to death and was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. And Isaiah also tells us it was the will of the Lord to crush him, He has put him to grief. It wasn't the Romans. It wasn't the Jews. It was the Lord. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what that verse means. Hell on the cross. So when we talk about propitiation, that's how God is propitiated by pouring his displeasure on the son john stott summarizes thus god took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it in his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us This is wonder of wonders. This ought to, I know sometimes it doesn't affect us, but we ought to pray that Lord would open us to behold this mystery, to to get a taste of the horror of our sin upon Gethsemane, uh, upon the cross rather. And if you've not yet come to Christ, if you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, this picture of his suffering on the cross, these three hours of perfect satisfaction for God's wrath is but a picture and a foretaste of the eternal hell awaiting you. For Christ it ended. He's the perfect sacrifice for sins. But for you, it will never end. It will never cease. 
It will be eon to eon. The worm shall not die. The fire shall not be quenched. Millennia to millennia. Always having God's wrath bearing down upon you. With no hope. And no end, end in sight. Flee the wrath. Fall at his feet. There is a way out. Will you take it today? Are you sure? Are you sure you are in Christ, whether you are old or young, if you're a youth in the service? Are you sure that God's wrath does not remain in you? Have you put your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you laid yourself upon Him and received full forgiveness? Is He your propitiation? Or are you willing to risk it and hope that this isn't true? Flee the wrath, I plead. So we've seen the nature of propitiation. It's accomplished through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, on the cross. It was the only way. He had to do it for us. The final point, what effect is this meant to have on us? What is the result of propitiation? This in a sense, horrible yet beautiful doctrine. It's, it's, a, it's hard. In the pagan view, once you've propitiated the God once, you have to keep doing it. The gods will get angry again. You must appease and appease and appease and appease. But Christ suffered once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Propitiation is a once-for-all act. It happened once, never to be repeated, never to be added to, never could be taken away. Christ died in your place for your sins, and as a result, God is not angry with you if you are in Christ, and he never can be angry with you. It was poured out in full once for all. And therefore, you and I have peace with God forever. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus was resurrected, what were the first things He said to the disciples? He appears in their midst in the upper room and He says, Peace be with you. That wasn't just a customary greeting. He's declaring, propitiation is done. Peace. I'm not angry. I'm with you. I love you. I'm for you. And he takes a meal and what he eats to prove he's real, but also as a sign of fellowship. Peace be with you, he proclaims in his resurrection. And peace be with you, he proclaims to you today. But what if I still sin as a Christian? You don't know what I did this last week. 
Not just little sins, but what if I even at times love my sin? What if I've really blown it? 1 John 2, 1, 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. Receive this truth. He is not angry. Better, he is at peace with you because he loves you, because he died for you, and he's brought you to himself through Jesus Christ. Of course we meant to hate our sin. Of course we know that God is not pleased with our sin, but your standing with God, if you are in Christ, cannot be changed because of your sin. It's done once for all, and you never have to pay him back. You never have to make it up. You never have to appease him. You never have to placate him. He is in disposition to you with only divine love and peace. The old hymn says, Peace, perfect peace in this dark world of sin. The blood of Jesus whispers peace within. But you may also ask, yes, he's a wrathful God, but does he really love me? 1 John 4, 8, God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Let your sins take you to the cross and let the cross preach to you God's eternal love. Don't hide from your sin thinking, oh, they're a barrier between me and God and I'm so ashamed of them, I just can't think about them. No, let your sins take you to the cross and on the cross you see that he loved you before you existed and he made a way for you. And know that his love will not change once you are in him. And so you can receive in full realization with no shame He loves you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He doesn't just permit you. He loves you. And that is why we can recline with him. Because we actually can go to table with Jesus. We can actually fellowship with him. We can actually be in his presence. Because there is no animosity between God and man because of the doctrine of propitiation. There is no fear. Perfect love drives out fear. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Christ, before he was crucified, went to an upper room with his disciples and reclined with them and shared with them a meal. In the ancient culture, to recline and eat was to declare peace and fellowship with that person. And he took bread and he took wine and he said, this body is my body broken for you and this blood is my blood shed for you in the new covenant. And he proclaimed peace to them. New terms, a new arrangement, a new covenant. If you believe in me, we are good forever. And as a result, you can sing even though you're a sinner. You can serve, even though you're a sinner. You can love, you can lead, you can do all things, even though 
you still are marked by your sin and you need have no shame and no fear because God's love is upon you. You can come to table and fellowship with Christ because of propitiation. And we're going to share in that meal the meal that was only made possible because of Christ now. We've moved from the court to the market to the temple. The pagans offer God sacrifices to appease him. Christians receive the sacrifice that God offers unto himself so that we can be appeased with him. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Friends, if you're a Christian, take and eat the bread and wine as it's given to you. We're going to, normally we take this all together, but this time take it in your own time as we sing our final song. If you're not yet a Christian or you're not sure, let the, blood, the, the bread and the wine pass by and know that as it passes you by, consider I'm, I'm letting go the only eternal hope I have. And as you pass it, consider is that really, is this, is this true? And if you're worried, use this moment to come to God and confess and put your faith in him and you will have justification right this very moment.